It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Today's show is brought to you by Outdoor Research. Outdoor Research has been in the gear design game since long before folks started calling a medium grande. Yet their commitment to function and beauty means that OR gear will get you through the toughest epics or whisk you into the cafe for that post-Dom Patrol cappuccino amongst the sad, sad night owls who stayed up till 4 a.m. binge-watching Netflix. Innovation and versatility are woven into the very fabric at OR, so you know you're covered whether you're spooning with your bestie on a force bivy or just on the cold stumble to work on a blurry Monday morning. So check out all their sleek designs at OutdoorResearch.com or your favorite local shop. In the spring season, many 8,000-meter peaks are increasingly crowded with guides who are all but carrying their clientele of sea-level executives and trust-funding thrill-seekers to the summit. But in winter, when temps plunge to 60 below and the winds tear at a maddening clip, the 8,000-meter peaks finally reveal themselves to be the truly savage and wild places that they are. This inhospitable desolation calls like a siren to the young and angry, as the great Polish alpinist Krzysztof Wielecki put it in his seminal Winter Manifesto, which summoned the next generation of alpine climbers to complete the 8,000-meter peaks in winter. Thus far, only one 8,000-meter mountain remains unclimbed in the winter season. That would be K2, arguably the toughest one of all. And for a second consecutive year, an incident on Nanga Parbat has required climbers on K2 to sacrifice their own shot at claiming this last great prize in order to come to the aid of their fellow mountaineers. This is Andrew Bisharat. You're listening to the Runout Podcast, and I'm here with Chris Calouse. In this episode, we try to unpack some of the drama that unfolded on Nanga Parbat this year, in which the lives of two incredible mountaineers were lost. Also, for a second year in a row, we saw the climbing world attempt to navigate the bureaucracies of Pakistan using social media and crowdfunding in real time in order to help aid the search mission as it was assembled. It's another year, and yet, it's the same story we've seen again and again. Unfortunately, it's a story that likely won't be going away anytime soon. So, Andrew, we're back in the studio. Back together. Yeah, back together again, face-to-face, cara a cara. <laughs> uh, it's good to be back home yeah. for, for a minute anyway. Yeah, for a minute. You've been been going through some personal troubles and yeah. stuck on the front range. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, front range is cool, um, but yeah, we've been... My wife is pregnant, and she's been in the hospital for the last six weeks, but she's doing better. She's out of the hospital for the time being. So, um, we're, we're hoping our, our second baby comes without any more troubles. Yeah. So, and everything's good with, uh, with the little one too, right? Yeah. The little one who's, who's currently living, uh, out in the real world, um, is doing great. She's, she's in preschool, um, a Jewish preschool learning 
uh, Shabbat Shalom songs. We're not Jewish, by the way, but we she is in a Jewish preschool, which is which is great and hilarious. Yeah, and she's so smart that she's going to come out of there speaking Hebrew. She pretty much is. Yeah, it's yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Um, but what about the other little one? Safe and sound inside of mommy still? Ah, uh, that one. Yeah, she is safe and sound. Yep. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been apart, but we're back together at the uh, at the studio here in Newcastle, Colorado. Um, and I wanted to ask you a bit today about the reporting that you've done actually over the last year at this point, two separate incidents on Nanga Parbat uh, with winter ascents with search and rescue. Yep. And um, if you could fill the details in, because I wanted to ask a little bit about, um, or, or at least discuss a little bit about the ethics of these new modern kind of rescue situations that we've been running into in places like Pakistan over the last I mean, starting several years ago. Yep. Um, but yeah, if you you fill us in about about the reporting you've done, and we'll go from there. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't want to get bogged down on all the details because this is these are complicated stories and could take hours to really discuss. So I, I think that a lot of people will, will probably have either read what I've written or what other people have written about um, these rescues. Uh, but the basic gist of it is that. Over the last two years, we've seen almost parallel incidents in which climbers on K2 who are trying to do the first winter ascent of that mountain have been pulled off to assist in a search or rescue mission on Nanka Parbat. Last year, there was an almost miraculous and incredible rescue that happened of a, str- a stranded climber, a French climber named Elizabeth Revol who um, was sort of miraculously found in the middle of the night uh, through just some heroic efforts by two climbers who who climbed at a blistering pace through the dark and storms and stuff to to find her. This year is a little different. There's a couple climbers who went missing, Tom Ballard and Daniele Nardi, trying to do a winter ascent of Nangaparbat via a new route. They went missing, and eventually a search was created to look for them and that lasted just over a week and was successful ultimately but unfortunately it was successful in that they they discovered the their bodies and they appeared to have been dead the whole time but parallel incidents in that helicopters and climbers from another situation were brought in to assist with climbers in trouble on a different mountain and so i think it really if this is the precedent that is set, I think that's worth talking about and getting into. Um, so one of the other parallels is the fact that in recent times and with, with these two, that the, the alert goes up worldwide. It goes mm-hmm. up globally because of sat phones, because of internet technology. And oftentimes somewhere at home, there's, there's a, a alert that goes out and a GoFundMe page that started to try to fund these rescues on the fly. Mm-hmm you know, no pun intended, to get the helicopters in the air, to get the people there, um, which is sort of this other new twist, Mm -hmm. I think, in modern mountaineering where everybody is so connected, maybe with or without the the climber's consent in a way, these giant rescues get started even back in the U.S. or in England or in Italy or wherever it happens to to be that the, the people are waiting for these climbers at home. Well, it's a real, it's a really interesting phenomenon that's happening because the, this idea in this context of mountaineering being a a pursuit of self-reliance, 
being out in the hills and being self-reliant is virtually gone in modern era because yeah because we have sat phones because we can update our friends with social media they can see our summit selfies or whatever it is for posted you know in real time and you know the moment that that we go missing that's also virtually known by everyone worldwide who's who happens to be following the climb and so it, it begs this question of well, what does everyone around the world do knowing that climbers are in trouble? And the response has been to try to throw money at a, at a problem by collecting it through crowdfunding sources. And last year, you know, we saw a climber saved basically, you know, not directly because of the, these funds, but because those funds helped facilitate get a helicopter off the ground and and there was a lot of luck involved in two you know her, heroic and very strong climbers they managed to make that rescue a reality but that is i think going to be a real outlier and most of the time what what we have been seeing is money being put towards searches that uh, often end up going nowhere so one of the primary rescue insurance providers in the world is this company called Global Rescue. And they've recently opened up a shop in Pakistan to help um, pay for rescues in the mountains through the, the Pakistani military that actually conducts the searches and rescues. And they've done this because there's been so much confusion, um, as you remember, dating back to our friends Kyle Dempster and Scott Adamson, who went missing in, on the Ogre two, two and a half years ago, yeah, 2016. Um, and, and probably before that too, but the, that, that's certainly the, one of the big ones that I remember. Um, but so global rescue is now operating in Pakistan and they're trying to, you know, figure out a way to help climbers get money to the Pakistani military to conduct these searches and rescues. Now, under their insurance policy, they don't cover searches. And the reason for that is because friends and family often want searches to go on beyond what a reasonable, dispassionate professional would suggest is would, would produce a you know a viable result. So they they don't cover that, but they could help arrange um, for searches to take place. They can get the money to. Askari Aviation, which is the military outfit in Pakistan that does the searches and rescues, um, which you can't do if if you're just raising money in Germany or wherever you are around the world. You can't just send money like tens of thousands of dollars to the Pakistani military. It's going to raise all kinds of red flags with banks, and it's just not possible. And so, going through a rescue insurance provider like Global Rescue would help facilitates, you know, dealing with those, the, the nuts and bolts of, of pain for these, you know, very costly and dangerous searches and rescues. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting perspective to have when you find out the problems, you know, these minutia that, that happens on that end of, yeah, well, how do they get the money and how is it wired there and what kind of, you know, currency is it in and all these sorts of things. And plus we're dealing with a country, you know, that has, at least in the U.S. perspective, you know, these terrorism problems. So, of course, banks aren't just going to be throwing money into Pakistan. It's When you're sitting here at home and you're, and you're watching these rescues or these searches happen, basically on social media, whether you're providing, you know, whether you threw in some money to the GoFundMe or not, 
uh, if you're in the climbing media, you're watching these things happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's hard to, it's hard to be dispassionate in the sense that realizing that, you know, this isn't Yosemite. Mm-hmm. This is not just where we expect the government to do something. And then, you know, if maybe they charge later or if they're, you know, the person rescued gets, gets a bill that happens literally months, if not years later, that's what we expect, at least in the U S and I would imagine where rescue is even more sort of immediate in places like the Alps, I would imagine people watching there are wondering, well, why isn't the helicopter already there? Why isn't this happening? Yeah, and that's a big difference because Europe is a socialized, you know, a socialized continent and people expect socialized services. They have um, a social safety net on, on every scale. And so... You know, and that that was in my reporting talking to some of the Pakistanis. That was one theme that came up was that oftentimes it's the Europeans who who show up who don't have the necessary funds or insurance or anything to cover them when they get in trouble. But Americans, you know, for better or worse, we're, we're accustomed to you know paying for things by ourselves, and um, and so. Uh, Americans have a, a reputation for being much more have their ducks in a row on a compared to the Europeans. Right. And, but there's also this issue and you kind of hinted at it, this ethos uh, that's always gone with, with alpinism. And personally I've always found the, the, the self-reliance. Kind of, yeah. The yeah. self-reliance idea. And I've, but, but personally I've often found the kind of clash between the myth of a certain thing in this case, alpinism, mountaineering, and the reality of it, it's for me, the clash between those mm. two things is always interesting because yeah. we, we, as climbers, you know, we, we think that we have this certain ethos and that we believe in these certain things about going into the mountains, how it's, you know, remote and we lose contact and leave your phone behind and don't be on the internet. And that's kind of the, the, you know, what we try to draw out of these pursuits but the reality is, is that a lot of these things are sponsored and whether the, the expedition itself is sponsored or whether those climbers are making a living as professional climbers, which they often are, they're required to be in contact. Right. But really the question is, is this idea of self-reliance and the fact that a lot of times these searches and rescues and this money and these GoFundMe things, they're they're not they're out of the hands of the climbers. The climbers have nothing to do with them mm-hmm. because oftentimes they're lost. In the case of Elizabeth Revel, you know, she was in contact on the mountain saying, I'm stuck. I'm I'm I cannot get down by mm-hmm. myself. And so the rescue ensued by her request. But these searches and, and other things are being put forth by the family, the friends mm-hmm. of these climbers. And and perhaps, you know, if there was some way to know these climbers would would have disagreed with this idea that I should be, or yeah. that they should be, you know, using the re- these resources to be rescued because many of them it's walked like, up onto the mountain believing in this idea of self reliance and you know would say no I don't need this I, I I've I've willingly and knowingly risked my life and that's the, what we decided to do yeah it's the it's the, the do not resuscitate you know, version of, yeah, of alpinism. I mean, I mean it, yeah. it really is a, a, an excellent to be, parallel Yeah, to be grim about it. But the idea that I've, I've chosen this, I mm-hmm. know the risks and, you know, these top and alp- alpinists know what they're getting into. Um, I'm certain Tom Ballard did mm-hmm. certain Kyle did. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so it becomes this weird, it's really difficult because of course you can't, you know, expect the family and friends to stand down Mm -hmm. when there's some shred of hope. There's some shred of this, this happening that these, these guys are on their last limbs. They're, they're, they're stuck in the crevasse. They're in the storm and they can be saved. You, you can't tell them to stand down, but it's just kind of a, a complicated thing to think about what we believe about mountaineering and the realities of some of these searches and these yeah. rescues um, I can't don't recall, go hand in hand. I can't recall a a search, a helicopter search that produced a successful result, not knowing where the climbers were. But I, I'm not an expert on in, this. In terms I, of this high high alpine, this high yeah. Himalaya type type like thing. Typically yeah. it's like you know where someone is who's in trouble and you, you you know you conduct a rescue mission to go get them but when someone's just gone for 4 days somewhere in the you know in these huge mountains it's like I I, I can't think of any um situation where a helicopter or search party is has produced a result but if you, if any of our readers know of any I'd love to know. But then you know, there's all these stories there's all these stories about people who've been you know, trapped in snow caves for a week or, you know, you're pinned by a boulder in a Canyon and cut their damn arm off. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, and then of course, uh, there's touching the void, which is Mm -hmm. the one you go to where, you know, everybody would have given up on, on Joe Simpson. And -hmm. in fact, the people in base camp were about to leave finally, Mm -hmm. uh, when he's, when he struggled in the camp. So yeah, the, the human spirit and the, the ability to overcome, you know, these physical challenges, you know, there's no, there's no end to the stories mm-hmm. and the myths. I mean, it's all based on, mm-hmm. you know, these ideas of, of the human sort of spirit overcoming, which is again, why you can't just say, no, those guys would have not wanted you to look for them. So don't look for them. You know, it's, it's a really tricky thing, but your yeah. point being the logistics of you're waiting to hear from somebody they've left the ground in some cases, you know, with, with, with with certain types of climbers, they purposefully leave behind communication devices because, again, some some have to, some want to be in contact. They 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 you know they have obligations to be in contact, but other climbers do choose to be away, to leave base camp and, and disappear. So, you know, by the time the people in base camp have given a reasonable amount of time that they haven't heard from them or seen anything of them, and then the time it takes to raise the rescue and get the helicopters there and go through the red tape, then yeah, oftentimes I think it's, it's far too late at that point. Well, I think if you that, haven't heard from the person, if they're not actually requesting, I, th- I think that the more important question to talk about here is, is that we as a climbing community need to abandon the idea of self-reliance in the mountains. It's just, it's an idea that maybe never existed and certainly doesn't exist now and, and is only going to not exist more in the future because you, uh, we have technology because technology has changed the world and you, you can go into the mountains by yourself and you know, someone will know that you're there. And if you don't come back, there's going to be people who are able to get online and, call up a rescue, you know, start a rescue or search or crowdfund or whatever it is and and get that off the ground. And they're going to do that for you because that's what people do who care about you. And so knowing this, like, what is the, what is the ethical approach to, to mountaineering now? And, and, you know, I think that 
the more I think about it, it starts to look as at something like if you're going into the mountains, you should be expected to bring a communication device that has backup power that would allow you to sat phone out anywhere you are, you know, like you need to, you know, dot your I's and cross your T's as much as you, as best you can so that if you do get in trouble, you can say, Hey, I'm in trouble, but you know, I'm going to be able to get out of this myself or, Hey, I'm in trouble. Come get me. And people should know that you have these devices so that if they also don't hear from you, there's, you know, very good likely chance that you're just, you're gone at that point. Because what it's the the rescues and the crowdfunding and all that is going to continue to happen. And so knowing that if you're going into the mountains, you have to account for that and do everything you can to ensure that you you burden the people around you as as least as you can. You know the other the other option or the other thought I think, and and this has has I think been the thought is that. You know, you make it clear to people that I don't want this to happen, you know, or I don't or, think that's going to happen. Exactly. That's not going to happen. That was my point. That's what my point was yeah. going to be is that it's just, it's not realistic. Yeah. It's not realistic. Cause you know? if you, if you're like, Hey, Andrew, I'm going, I'm going into the mountains tomorrow on a vision quest. And if I'm not back, then don't come just looking for up. me. Yeah, just here's give my, up. Here's the key to my car. <laughs> you can have it. I mean, you know, it's morbid. And, I feel like and, that's and, not enough. Yeah. It's not enough. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this want- is a great house. Can I live here? <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, it's morbid, but it's, it's true because that's, that's not effective. It never has been effective. Mm-hmm. You know, I even talk about that with these no resuscitation, you know, if you're in your thirties or if you're in your forties or even your fifties and you're in good health, you know, this idea of like, well, you know, if I'm on a machine and I'm like living this, this horrible life, you know, in a home or whatever, you know, just pull the plug put me on an iceberg, whatever, you know, a lot of those things change when you're Mm -hmm. actually in that situation. You become the person that's like, no, 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 no. I want to live. Mm -hmm. I want to cling to life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these premeditated ideas that, okay, I'm, I'm like on my own and leave me alone and don't, don't deal with it is they're just not realistic. Yeah, they're not realistic. What you're talking about is realistic is, Mm -hmm. is again, shunning that myth, you know, admitting that it's it's gone at least for the moment, and embracing this idea that we you have to have safeguards, mm-hmm. legitimate you know fail safes to make sure that people understand what's happening to you when you're in the mountains, and that's just like the sucky thing the way it is. I mean, I remember when cell phones first became powerful, and you know where where you could get a cell coverage fairly ubiquitously. You know, there's still places you can't, but mm-hmm. you know the the diamond on Long's Peak, anywhere in in, in Rocky Mountain National Park, actually, mm-hmm. when we were guiding, all of a sudden there was cell reception, and people were resisting this idea, even as guides, right. even as mountain guides, yeah. of, of carrying a cell phone in the mountains because it just like broke this. The people myth. who should most want, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It literally, I mean, that was an argument like we should leave this behind because we're in the mountains. And, right you know, very quickly it was realized like that's just stupid. Right. And, and and in fact, with guiding companies, it was very clearly negligent at some point to not have a cell phone with you if you're a guide. And, and, and it's certainly just... something that could be brought up in court to right. say, well, why the hell didn't you, right. Mr. Mountain Man? Yeah, yeah. That's, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. The, um, the And now it's not just cell phones. It's like, I think it's DeLorme in reaches. I don't know what yeah. the, but GPS devices that allow you to virtually be able to just send a text message out almost anywhere in the world. 
Um, and I certainly know people and climbers who carry that, uh, you know, out to Indian Creek, even places like that. Certainly. Yeah. And Indian Creek doesn't have cell phone. Right. That's what makes it feel like wilderness, mm-hmm. even though there's a road right there. But self-reliant, yeah, I'm very self-reliant. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we 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 are in this age, and and it's time to kind of think about it. What what about the question about the ethical or or sort of responsibility of these host countries, if for for a better word, mm-hmm. in this case, and in in most cases, I've heard about recently, it's Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, if you're here in the U.S., we certainly expect you know the services to to provide. Um, Canada, you know, if you're in Nepal, you're in China, all these sorts of places with, again, with that European mentality, or I think American or North American mentality, you expect the government to do something, but should we, you know, should, should these, these people who, you know, show up and wantonly, I think in the, in the view of, of the average person in somewhere like Pakistan, risk their lives to do some silly thing like climb a mountain you know, eat up these resources, you know, massive amount of resources for, for a country like Pakistan in terms of a rescue. Yeah, it's certainly a, a huge consideration in really poor countries like Pakistan and Nepal. And, um, you know, I can go into the history of how Askari Aviation was created, which is sort of illuminating in terms of that discussion. But I don't know if that's if we have time for that. But no, do it. Um, Give me a little bit. OK, Just so a little taster. Basically, you know, in around 1994 and 95, there were all of these mountain rescues that happened and the military was eating up these massive expenses, expenses, rescuing people in the mountains. And they were like, well, who's paying for this? You know, we're a poor country and nobody is paying us back, you know, and people were just kind of expecting uh, the governments to step up and, and help them out. And so... There, it was impossible to give money direct or it's illegal to give money directly to the Pakistani government. So they set up this like sidearm side business called Askari Aviation that was kind of a workaround of, okay, you can pay us through this company, but it's still run by the military. Right, We're still using military equipment. Right. Because they're the only people who have a, exactly. a helicopter that can go where it needs to go. And so it was set up as like this business that was going to be viable at some point. You know, they were kind of given a loan by the, by the military and that business plan kind of crashed after September 11th because tourism basically stopped in Pakistan. Nobody went there. And meanwhile, in Nepal, you know, the adventure tourism industry is booming by comparison. It's like, you know, 900 climbers and trekkers total went to Pakistan last year. And there's, you know, over 7,000 people in Nepal who are going trekking and climbing. And so as a result of that, the market forces dictate that there's private helicopter rescue services in places like Nepal, but Pakistan, which is like the wild west of the mountains, doesn't have that. And so then, you know, people can started going to Pakistan more recently in the last 10 years as the objectives in the, you know, traditional Himalaya became fewer and far between. Well, let me interrupt you for a second. It's interesting because, because it's the wild West, because it's perceived to have, you know, not as smooth of a transition from, you know, town to mountain services to mountain. 
that's one of the appeals that's of one it, of which is appeals. ironic yeah. about this whole thing. It's one of the appeals, and yet when the shit hits the fan, right. the expectation is still there. Absolutely. Right. I mean, yeah, the, the trek to base camp of Everest is, you know, you're going in, it sounds like, you know, basically one big outdoor strip mall <laughs> all the way there. <laughs> but um, getting into Nanga Parbat or K2 is a very different situation. Um, in the last 10 years, Ascari Aviation has, has functioned as this as the only rescue in Pakistan. Now, they have been burned many times by uh, European climbers whose insurance companies either won't pay them back or European climbers who don't pay them. Or they were supposed to have some kind of rescue deposit. So you pay $15,000. It was $15,000 a couple years ago to basically fund like we'll turn our engines on and come, you know, help you out. Um, because it, it costs quickly get up to like $50,000 a day if it's a full day of rescue. So they were kind of wary. They were, they were like, well, we're still not getting paid and this still isn't working as a business. And so there's a lot of, you know, how do we make this work? Um, we want climbers to ensure that we're going to get paid before we start risking the lives of the people who work for us and, and spending money that we don't have considering that we're a country that's so poor that can't even really, you know, pay for its citizens to, to lead decent lives, you know? So there's that whole other ethical side to this is why are you spending hundreds of thousands of dollars looking for Western climbers when we have all these domestic problems yeah, at home? There's no so, services. Yeah. There's no us, services. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that was a, an issue as well. Now, Basically, I, I got a lot of mixed uh, and confusing reporting on this, and I'm still not exactly clear about it, but it sounds like Ascari has changed their policy so that they're going to come find you or rescue or search for you, if regardless of what you do. There's still a policy in place where they have a deposit that climbers should pay and should reach out to this company to make sure that they pay this deposit for their whole team. And... Climbers should also get a $400 annual membership with Global Rescue, which is the only company in Pakistan right now that can facilitate a rescue or facilitate getting funds to Ascari. So if you have Global Rescue Insurance, they're going to say, okay, we've got a bank account in Islamabad. We can direct, get funds over to Ascari Aviation right away. No questions asked. They're, they're going to you know, come find you. And then they'll figure out all of the details around that in the aftermath. So that's a much better situation than what we've seen in the last couple of years where people are like, blah, blah, blah is missing. We need to raise $50,000 in the next 24 hours to send Taskari Aviation so that they can like start searching. That's That wasn't really true last year. And that's not true anymore either because... Most of that money that has been raised for some of these rescues and searches has paid back embassies of countries that have been the ones who have gotten the money to yeah, they've Pakistan. Like fronted the money. They front the money. Yeah. And so they've either paid back embassies. Um, in some cases, the embassies, the French embassy for Elizabeth Revol, did not, you know, said that they don't need to be repaid for this. Um, or I'm sorry, it was the, the Polish embassy for Thomas Makowitz was the one who said we don't need to be repaid for, you know, his search and the French embassy did accept a repayment, but a lot of the money goes to the, the loved ones of the deceased if, if they've gone. So most of the money raised last year for went to Thomas Makowitz's 
three children. There is some cathartic and uh, sort of feel good about, you know, dropping 20 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever you can to these GoFundMes. And, and I, don't, I, I think most people, you know, w- would look back and not demand their money back oh, if for they sure. go to a rescue. Which is a whole nother thing, but but um, well, no, but the, I mean that's an interesting point because uh, these GoFundMe's for these rescues have been launched under the premise that time is of the essence and we need money now, and that's not really the case, and that hasn't been how it's worked uh, so far. Just because most people would be fine with paying money to, you know, support the family of the cl- the the climber who's, who died, that's a separate issue from you know, just being, I, I don't know. There's something dishonest about that. I think that, that we should consider. And, yeah, certainly. I, yeah. The dishonesty isn't quite the way I think about it, at least in the, in the recent ones. I think that, um, it, it, it's this, it, it, it's what we're talking about is that these, these GoFundMe initiators and all of us who are chucking money in there don't understand what the real machinations of what it takes right. to do a rescue in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And so if you're freaking out and you're here because your loved one is, is lost on this mountain, I'm, I'm sure the idea is that I'll just get this money and somehow I'm going to make this happen over there. So you know what I mean by like a dishonesty thing? It's a little bit more of, of a, of a ignorance thing about how this whole system actually really works. Once, once you've, you know, everybody jumps to and it's 24 hours later and there's $25,000 in this GoFundMe when you wake up and realize that, well, I can't do anything mm-hmm. with this money right now. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. It's literally impossible to do anything with a GoFundMe account with Ascari Aviation. I guess the um, positive way to look at it too, just to put a positive spin on this morbid conversation, <laughs> look at what the climbing community can do. When when one of our fellow climbers goes missing, it's it's amazing. We've seen this time and time again, where massive amounts of money have been, you know, pulled together. Yeah, but, out of but the blue. ten bucks here, twenty bucks yeah. there, hundred bucks there, and you know, I just glanced at some of these GoFundMe's because you know the record's still there. You can look at them. Um, you know, it's like sixty eight thousand bucks for for Ryan Johnson, forty some thousand for uh, Mark Andre's family. You know, hundreds over a hundred thousand for some of these other rescues in, in the Himalayas. So yeah, it is pretty wild. And I don't think it hurts that much to drop 20 bucks no. into these things. And, no, and, no. And I've happily done that right. for all of those, but the, I think the, the, the precedent is, is disturbing and we should, it's not something I think that we want to, it's not a path. I don't think climbing should go down. And part of the reason I don't think it's ethical to, to pay for rescues this way is that it inherently there's like this inherent bias to just people who are well-known celebrities, you know, whose lives are, we're saying is more valuable in some sense than just someone who just goes missing in the mountains who you don't know who they are and they don't have any following whatsoever. And I think that's problematic too. We don't want to have a system that is biased toward people who are well-known or you know, better loved in the community we want to be able to have a rescue that's very fair and can save whoever it is who, if if that's something that we value, right? Like that, that should be important too. Yeah. And, and I think the, the, the final thing is, you know, and what we've been trying to get at here is this, the, there, there's just 
so many sort of ethical conundrums that are are mixed up in mm-hmm. this. Yeah. And really, in the end, I mean, when you're talking about the ethics of whether a, a country like Pakistan should should save these Western climbers, whether or not people should risk their lives, their lives in these helicopters or whether or, or these other climbers to go to to go save these people, um, where this money comes from, all these things are are, are really confusing, difficult, um, you know, fraught with emotion, mm-hmm. certainly. And and again, like I can't, you know, consciously ask loved ones to stand down in, in yeah, the face totally. of all these things. So really, in my opinion, it's what you said. The ethical thing to do as a climber in these countries is to have the ducks in a row before you step off the ground about how it's going to go down, who's going to pay for it, how you're going to stay in contact. Because not staying in contact is, at this point, I think, unethical. Mm-hmm. Despite the the freedom of the hills yep. image, despite you know the going in and disappearing sort of image, you know the last thing th- I can think about is, is Charlie Fowler and Christine Boscoff in in China. You know, literally, it, they were weeks and weeks overdue. Because they had no way of, of talking yeah, to anybody. Yeah, that's interesting to think about now. You know, and, yeah. and they they finally did uh, uh, find a body, I believe, maybe not both, um, but it was literally years mm. later. Right. You know, that's the ethic that I think all of this mountaineering lore is built on. But it's, you know, that was, you know, a decade ago, um, yeah. more, actually a little bit more than a decade ago. And the technologies just, just kind of overwhelmed the 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 mythology or the story that we tell ourselves about, about being in the mountains. And that's what it comes down to. In an ironic way, uh, taking the onus to, to ensure that you have every way of communicating with the outside world and making sure all your ducks are in a row before you go into the mountains is actually maybe one of the highest expressions of self-reliance. If you have a comment, topic suggestion, or just a good bit of climbing trivia, join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash runoutpodcast, or drop us a line at our webpage, runoutpodcast.com. <laughs>